0: Welcome to season two of the Forbes Interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni, editor of the Forbes Under 30. On this show, the world's top business leaders and young entrepreneurs share their big wins, important failures, and tips on how to compete in today's fierce business climate. This podcast is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp's all-in-one marketing platform allows you to manage more of your marketing activities from one place so you can market smarter and grow faster. The Chinese have long been derided as copycats of the tech industry, but that image is rapidly changing. In fact, these days, it's China where tech trailblazing is arguably more thrilling. Steve Case, the founder of AOL, and Kai-Fu Lee, chair and CEO of Cinnovation Ventures, warned that if the United States doesn't start innovating more vigorously, it will soon fall behind China. We're about to hear from them, as well as Ryan Williams, CEO and co-founder of Cadre, and Max Blabovsky, CEO and co-founder of Formlabs. This conversation, moderated by me, was recorded at the Forbes Under 30 Summit last year in Boston. Thanks, everybody. Whew. What a great theater, huh? This is amazing. Um, Steve, th- thank you for sharing. Kai-Fu, thank you for joining. Thank you. I'm gonna kick it to you real quick. We're talking about new technology frontiers, and there's no place more exciting than China. What is going on? Like, le- let us know the most important things happening right now for the entrepreneurs in that, that continent.
1: Sure, uh, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, I think what you read in the media in China is generally not complete. What is happening in China is that Chinese entrepreneurs have come up with a completely parallel way of starting up new companies. And it is about tenacity, uh, about uh, working 9.96, 9 a.m., 9 p.m., six days a week. <laughs> and it's about um, coming up with new things that were before not thought possible. So, whereas you know, Steve Jobs dreamed of building this device, no one knew they needed. In China, uh, they go after things they know people needed but seem impossible to achieve. For example, replace the credit cards. So, in the last three years, uh, China now has almost no credit cards and no cash. Last year, uh, mobile payment transaction was at $18 trillion, larger than China's GDP. And it's so convenient, it's, it's not Venmo and PayPal, it's much, much better. It's peer-to-peer, anyone-to-anyone, 15 cents as a microtransaction, no fees. And imagine the ease that would bring. There's a company called Meituan, which sounds a little bit like Groupon or Yelp, but it's not. It changed the way Chinese people eat, because almost every Chinese living in urban cities, and there are 200 urban cities, they can order food delivered to the home for about 70 cents delivery fee. And the idea of the entrepreneurship is to grind away so that amazing uh, delivery system can be done with uh, people who would sign up to deliver on electrical mopeds. Mm -hmm. And when you get to 30, 30 minutes from the time you order, the food is on your table and the delivery fee is 70 cents, People cook half as much. They eat out half as much. So the Chinese entrepreneurship, I think, is less aspirational and visionary, but but they're going after a really, really hard, almost impossible, practical goal. And when they do, it creates tremendous value. So, Meituan, for example, is worth $55 billion, wow. a lot more than the U.S. counterparts. These are some of the yeah. examples.
0: You mentioned you know, Steve Jobs and do <coughs> entrepreneurs in China and also entrepreneurs in these rise rest cities, do they look to the Silicon Valley kind of icons to emulate or are they kind of coming up with their new ideas, their new heroes, their new way of building things?
2: Well, it's a mix. Certainly, uh, Steve Jobs and many other entrepreneurs were kind of, are icons of people kind of growing up saying, someday I want to be Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, and it's happening now, you know, globally, as Skype said. That it, that even the notion of the rise of rest, I should point out, that I think it was 15 years ago, a journalist, Fareed Zakaria, wrote about the idea of the rise of rest. He was talking about the rise of China and India and other mm. countries and basically saying it didn't mean that the United States would necessarily fall. But as these other countries rose as economic powers and as entrepreneurial powers, it would change the global balance, uh, which it obviously has. Well, we took the idea of rise of rest. We said, you know, that's interesting. But the same phenomenon can and we think should happen within the United States, where Silicon Valley, Boston, New York will continue to be the leader of the pack. There's a lot of great things obviously happening in in, in Silicon Valley in terms of capital and ta- mm-hmm. talent, sort of this fearless you know, you know, culture, but we need to figure out ways to have other cities rise. And if we don't, I think we are at great risk of losing America's lead as the most innovative mm-hmm. entrepreneurial nation. China is on the move. It is, yeah. no question it has, has risen, no question it's a, a powerhouse. And it's worth remembering America itself, was a startup. You know, 250 years ago, it was just an idea, and we kind of led the way in the agriculture revolution, led the way in the industrial revolution, more recently led the way yep. in the started technology revolution. Started here, here in Boston. Obviously started city. right here. And, and, and so now we went from the startup nation, fragile startup nation, to the leader of the pack and we had the leading economy. If we don't continue to innovate and don't do that in a more inclusive way, we are at risk of, of losing our, our, our lead
0: to, you know, to, in particular yeah. to, to China. And you, you mentioned the, nine, the 996 model. Is there do Chinese entrepreneurs, do they, they model themselves after certain people or certain ideas, or do they kind of do their own thing? What's the, what, what do people look to?
1: Well, that's the amazing thing is that China started as copycats. There's no denying that. Eight to 15 years ago, uh, 90% of the Chinese companies were copycats. Uh, not IP infringement, but just copying the idea, kind of like, you know, what Facebook did to Snapchat, kind of mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. copycat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But today, their uh, Chinese companies are copycat no longer. Uh, The Chinese entrepreneurs have come up with a whole new way of entrepreneurship. Um, To, in short, the way is think of a really audacious goal and go after it. And once you show some progress, other people are bound to copy you. This is Chinese copying Chinese now. (laughs) But to prevent you from being copied, you really raise so much money and you build a model that's so impregnable and then that com- competitors have no chance to beat you. So how do you, be- how do you develop an uncopyable business model? I think that's the biggest Chinese innovation. Um, the example I gave about 30 minutes, 70 cents, getting food on your table. Uh, that was done by having an army of 600,000 moped riders figuring how to recharge them and figure out all the AI technologies and paths and that eventually grind down a few cents a month. It's just hard work operational excellence. And once you got there, your competitor, how are they going to raise a few billion dollars to develop an equivalent operational army? So. Uh, Some of these ideas, uh, I think what Steve said is very interesting, is that US relies too much on Silicon Valley as the only model. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs as the only icon. I think there are parallel ways and I think China has shown there are new ways and these new ways are different, maybe in some sense, you know, less brilliant and visionary than Silicon Valley, but they contribute and create equivalent value. So I wanted to write that up so that it could be shared and this is why I wrote this new book called AI Superpowers. But actually, the first half of the book is about the Chinese entrepreneurial mm. ecosystem, and I hope that's of use to people who want to go after great startups, but not, sen- not necessarily uh, using the Silicon Valley and model. Just to
2: yeah. build on that, the the uh if you look at the venture capital data 20 years ago over 80 percent of venture capital was in the united states now it's less than 50 yeah. percent because of the rise of china and yeah. i do think in ai and other fields arguably china is in the lead now so this notion that a lot of people still have that as kai vu said that china is really good at like replication you know copycat manufacturing stamping out ipads and what have you is not as good on the invention clearly has shifted over the past decade and it's kind of game on in terms of this global innovation battle. The only other point I want to make around this kind of leveling the playing field Mm -hmm. of opportunity, particularly in this country, I mentioned 75% of capital goes to three states, which is a problem. There's two other data points that I think people should be aware of that are are arguably worse problems, which is that last year, over 90% of venture capital in the United States of America went to men, less than 10% to women. Last year, less than 1% went to African Americans. So we can, Canada and should be proud of this being a great entrepreneurial nation. But the data does say, it does matter where you live. Mm-hmm. It does matter what you look like. It does matter kind of who you know. Whether if you have an idea, you really have a shot of the American dream, a shot of turning that into a company. And if we're going to win this next battle that's now a global battle around innovation entrepreneurship, we can't do that if we're just investing in a, you know, similar people in similar places. We've got to level the playing field so everybody who has an idea you know, really has that shot at raising the capital they need to start and scale that, that business. It's critically important. Otherwise, we are going to lose our way. And I think we'll have an even more divided country yeah. that, you know, it's bad now. It could get Worse if we don't figure out ways to create more jobs and more communities by backing more entrepreneurs
0: in more places. That's a huge point, and Kaifu, I'm curious, is there a diversity problem within the Chinese ecosystem? Are certain people or backgrounds doing, getting most of the funding, getting most of the action, or is it more mm. evenly um, spread out?
1: Well, I think there's always the um, uh, advantage of the serial entrepreneurs, and serial entrepreneurs are always chased by the VCs, and they get more money, they get higher valuation, Um, But but to Steve's point, I think it's quite important to have some uh, alternate role models Mm -hmm. in order to achieve diversity. Uh, One of the amazing things in China was if you look at the first uh, wave of Chinese entrepreneurs, they were Robin Lee, Charles Zhang, you know, American PhDs, gone back. So people, other entrepreneurs feel like unless I am an academic superstar and get a PhD in the U.S., I have no chance. Mm -hmm. Then came Jack Ma. Right, His favorite story was, uh, I graduated from a third-rate university. I couldn't get a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm-hmm. And, and that was incredibly motivating to Chinese entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that uh, the boy from next door, hey, that's like me. I can do it too. So I think having that role model and having alternate uh, business models can help uh, drive uh, diversity. Are there, are
0: there women in the ecosystem or is this mostly male dominated right now? Uh,
1: it is um, about the same as US, um, more male. Uh, we're trying to fund more women entrepreneurs. One of our entrepreneurs, uh, Cindy Mee, uh, in a company called VIP Kid, uh, mm. which actually connects US and China with American uh, English tutors, uh, teaching Chinese kids to speak, speak English. And I think she's become kind of a spokesperson Mm -hmm. and an inspiration to other women entrepreneurs.
0: Both of you guys came from the many waves of tech. You know, you're very involved in in the early 90s. What about from going from all the different ups and downs and whatever? What about today in technology surprises you the most when you were both starting out? Like what, what is the... What, ha- what has happened that shocked you, and what hasn't happened that has shocked you that hasn't happened yet? Well, I have been doing this for a while. When I was picking yes. up
2: my badge yesterday. I felt I should be registering for the 60 over 60 conference, not the <laughs> 30 under we're 30. We're working now. on that. We're building we, that We next. started we AOL, started, well, just for, the, for those who don't know, in 1985. Wow. At the time, only 3% of people were online, and they're online an average of one hour a week. Uh, And nobody thought there was a reason to get online. It was kind of of crazy. And it took us a decade to kind of build it out. But as I think about that first wave of the internet, kind of getting America online, getting the world online, Partnerships was very important, policy was very important, and perseverance was very important. And it was also pretty regionally distributed. It was mm-hmm. not just Silicon Valley. We were in the D.C. area, got CompuServe the competitor, was in Columbus, Ohio. Sprint was in Kansas City. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque before wow. moving to Seattle. It's only the second wave when it became about software and apps that Silicon Valley rose to dominance. I think it can regionalize again. I do think, in terms of your question, the, the key skill set in this next third wave around healthcare and food and smart cities is going to be understanding it's not just about the software, it's not just about the app, it's about building partnerships, building trust, building relationships with doctors and hospitals, mm-hmm. for example, in healthcare, getting integrated with health systems. This partnership collaboration aspect, I think, is going to be critically important. There's an African proverb, that I think will kind of define this third way, which you want to go quickly... You can go alone, but if you want to go far, you must go together. That mindset around partnership is critical. And the last point, and it's going to become more important in the next 10 or 20 years, is this policy side of things. People, entrepreneurs, don't like to hear about regulations. It slows them down. Obviously, we all get frustrated by that. But the reality is if you're talking about, like, medical devices or drones in the sky or other kinds of things, there's going to be some regulations. And that was not as true. Facebook and others didn't really need to deal with the policy framework until they got really, really big. You know, the entrepreneurs in this third wave policy is going to become you know, much more important. So in some ways, mm-hmm. the policy partnership perseverance that was critical in the first wave was not as important in the second wave, I think is going to become critical again in the third wave.
0: Okay. So is, you, know, you were at Apple and Google and Microsoft in China, is China where you expected it would be? Is it further along? Is it, would you expect more right now in the ecosystem?
1: I think I've, uh, yeah, I worked in uh, Apple and Microsoft in the US oh, God, yeah. and then I also worked for Microsoft and Google in, in China. And I've always been um, a proponent that China is going to be on the rise uh, because of the uh, incredible hunger and excitement uh, about entrepreneurship and technologies. So I think that's pretty much met my expectation. Where I felt I was really surprised was I was an AI researcher. I studied AI at Carnegie Mellon. And at the time, I thought in the 30 years or so, we'd have something close to the human brain. Uh, That turns out to be way off. Uh, On the other hand, what actually happened is AI technologies have become single task and amazingly capable and able to solve problems just within single task, not anywhere close to human. And that single task creates so much economic value that I also didn't anticipate. So I think the excitement that I see, the other theme of my book, is that AI is going to penetrate, not as in this robot cyborg uh, mm-hmm. vision, but as in an enabling platform. Pretty much as um, uh, Microsoft Windows was a platform, and uh, uh, Android was a platform, and I think AI will, is the next platform. By platform I mean uh, reachable to everyone, so an engineer without having a PhD in AI can use it and, and also even though you know Google, Facebook are very, very strong, I think the small companies have a chance because AI is not just in areas of search and social and internet. It can be used in medicine, retail, manufacturing, pretty much everywhere, so mm-hmm. I think the big surprise, and that's the thing that I spend most of my waking moments on, is how to uh, become a better VC investing in companies that build on this upcoming AI platform. So,
2: one thing on that, Kaifu mentioned Carnegie Mellon, which is uh, one of the great universities yep. around, you know, particularly AI, robotics, other things, in Pittsburgh. And the, the data there is giving us some confidence, some enthusiasm about this rise of the rest, because 10 years ago, almost everybody graduating from Carnegie Mellon left to go someplace else. They Mm -hmm. did not stay in Pittsburgh. They left, usually you go to Silicon Silicon Valley, Some, some went to Boston. Now fewer people are leaving and more people are coming back there's a boomerang of talent beginning to emerge and now facebook has a big office uber most of their driverless car operations yep. are not in silicon valley they're in pittsburgh and that's just one of the many examples the dozens of examples of these cities on the rise which give us confidence that hopefully people in this audience in those cities can believe they can build the next great companies there or if they went to school in some place or grew up in some place and have kind of said maybe at some point i want to go home Hopefully yeah. as these rising cities you know, rise, there'll be more of that opportunity. And you, know, you know, that's quality. really yeah.
1: exciting because uh, one of the things Carnegie Mellon was so proud of over the years was our computer science graduates make the highest salary. Yeah. Yeah. But I always say that that's because you're not, don't have enough entrepreneurs to average into the equation. Mm. It's great to hear that's yeah. changing.
0: So we've had a great, I mean, really enjoyed these two venerable you know, entrepreneurs. I want to bring out two <coughs> under 30s now to add some new perspective. So please welcome Ryan Williams from CADRE. And Max Lewowski from Form Labs. Thank you, guys. Venerable means old,
2: by the way. No, and venerable there, means there's. respected.
0: Means proven. <laughs> well, you were talking about the third wave, and I, I'm excited to have Ryan and Max here because you guys are in technology, but you're in like old-school kind of messy businesses of commercial real estate and manufacturing. So, you know, what are you seeing right now? What is the what is exciting about tech? You know, just, you're, you're in it, you're on the ground. Let's, let's hear what's, what's, what's going on.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, my name is Ryan, founder, CEO of Cadre. Uh, Cadre is focused on building the world's preeminent digital marketplace for alternative assets, starting with commercial real estate. Yeah. And so I, um, I actually got my start in real estate with a really early lightweight application of technology, buying homes in the Southeast. But I was using technology... Um, really to unlock more information so I can make better investing decisions, aggregating data. And I think that's what's most exciting today about the real estate space and so many other historically relationship-driven, opaque industries, is you know, the power of information and the standardization of information and data to level the playing field, mm-hmm. to let more people have better futures. And so I think you're seeing that um, in real estate, which is, as I always say, the most drastic industry in the world, but also one of the most important to own, um, but I also think it's being applied to other industries. I know we talked in the backstage a little bit about 3D printing and actually think there's tons of application in our industry and others, yeah. but really to level the playing field, which is what I think is most exciting about our current state in tech.
0: Yeah, Max, you know, manufacturing industry is like now a front page of every newspaper because of politics. What are, you, what are you seeing? How does it affect what you're doing to democratize manufacturing everywhere?
4: Yeah, so uh, at Formlabs what we're doing is uh, building kind of a new generation of easy to use and accessible 3D printers. Um, so 3D printing has actually been around for a while, yeah. but they were big, expensive, difficult to use machines. And um, what uh, what we kind of got excited about is that if you could get this technology to a lot more people, mm-hmm. we're still talking about professionals, product designers and engineers, but also Uh, There's applications in jewelry and dental and many other fields. Um, But if you can can get that technology to more people, you can enable a whole range of new businesses, new types of innovation, uh, bringing new products to market. Um, And I think the kind of the the relevant angle with um, discussion of international trade and tariffs today is that uh, potentially digital fabrication uh, tools like 3D printing can start to Eliminate the need to trade over long distances and uh, increase the ability for countries and companies to produce things locally. Well, Steve Max, you guys—I mean, Steve and Kaifu—you're the entrepreneurs. You ask these young,
0: young, young wave questions. What, do you so want what is have? your
2: biggest challenge? If you had to, there's one thing you could add like a really wonk a golden ticket and you know basically <laughs> get it. Is it a is it more capital? Is it somebody to add to your team? Is it a, some partnership that could change your trajectory? Is some change in the regulations? And say, what what mm-hmm. what would the one thing because I think with entrepreneurship you have to be focused. Is there is there like one thing if you can knock that out of the way or it's a door that
3: opens, you know, what you're doing can really accelerate? Yeah, I think for uh for us um, it's probably distribution partnerships. I think um, because real estate is such an inefficient business, I can literally go around this building and find 10 ideas, you know, leveraging real estate and tech to create some efficiency. Maybe it's the downstairs a lobby area having a little bit more just process management because it was tough for me to get in. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's a ton of different ideas like that. And I think the, the winners in real estate tech and so many other industries are the ones that can form partnerships, uh, create distribution. Uh, with the core business model that works. So for us, we entered into a partnership with Goldman Sachs earlier this year. Um, we want to replicate that with others, and that will allow us, again, to reach more people. So I think it's partnerships for us.
4: Uh, for us, I think we're, we're really fortunate that in the last couple of years, we kind of we crossed out of the early startup phase where it wasn't clear if what we were doing was valuable or useful for anyone. And we also kind of crossed out of the phase where struggling to get... <clears throat> access to capital was a big deal. Um, and so I think once you have something that you know is valuable to work on and you have money to work on it with, the last key piece, that's the one we have the most trouble with is getting great people to, to, to you know, accomplish those things with. Um, so more and more that's like my entire job. Um, and uh, you know, I think connecting with um, what you talk about, Rise of the Rest, uh, we're, we're starting to look outside of Boston and, and into, um, you know, what are normally considered more secondary tech cities to find great people, um, because that's the, honestly the biggest limiter to our growth.
0: And both of you guys looking to expand to China, if you're not already in there, have Chinese partners. I think, Max, you mentioned you have Chinese investors. How does that dynamic work with, I mean, obviously you're focusing both on America now, but, you know, in kai backyard, it's a huge opportunity. How's, how does international and other markets kind of affect it?
4: Yeah, so uh, China, obviously, um, uh, the largest manufacturer in the world and second largest economy, so there's no way we could be a manufacturing technology company without um, working in China. And it's both uh, uh, where we manufacture some of our products and also an important um, uh, you know, market to sell our products into. Uh, that, that's part of why we took uh, some investment from uh, Chinese investors, and we're building a presence mm-hmm. in Shenzhen as well. Um, and you know, the, way, the way I think about it is, if you're in a real technology business where like, what you're <coughs> producing is IP that can be reused by, uh, by many people all over the world, then it, it inevitably will be a really global uh, thing, and you have to go wherever mm-hmm. the customers
1: are. I, I think what you're doing is great, but I would want to caution o- other entrepreneurs not to automatically assume expanding to China is the next step, yeah. because there are a lot of uh, different uh, usage patterns. Um, uh, I think it's almost a different parallel universe. But you obviously are using uh, you know, Chinese uh, to, to manufacture, so, so you have a natural connection. But if I could ask one question, is that you're both uh, up against uh, traditional, right? traditional real estate, traditional manufacturing. And uh, to what extent are you uh, partnering with them? And to what extent, I know in your heart, you want to disrupt them. (laughs) So how do you balance this need? Do you kind of play along for a while and then eventually come out and disrupt? Or do you declare you're the disruptor now? Or do you find other partners like Goldman Sachs to disrupt them now with you?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I came from uh, one of the, uh, the largest uh, stakeholders in our space Blackstone, um, and so I had a first hand view into um, what was done exceptionally well and what I thought could be improved on. I still think we're at a stage where we aren't really looking to go out the gate and uh, disrupt or ruffle too many feathers largely because we 're still playing on a smaller scale. Um, I think the way we ultimately get to sort of that nonlinear growth <coughs> is by forming partnerships with some of these incumbents. I think they're either going to have to reinvent themselves or they will be destroyed. And so we're starting on the demand side of our business with Mm -hmm. bank partnerships, access to consumer. And at some point, because we provide a better product, lower price point, more transparency, more liquidity, I think you'll start seeing uh, adoption, um, you know, inevitably amongst some of those stakeholders. The master
0: manufacturers like you guys, are they trying to work with you or work against you?
4: Pretty much every company in the world that makes stuff today is asking, like, how do we use 3D printing? How is this going to change our business? So um, we're in a good place in in that way where uh, there aren't manufacturers that are necessarily threatened um, by what we're bringing. They're, they're excited, mm-hmm. uh, excited for it. But honestly, I don't think we focus so much on, like, where are we disrupting uh, some incumbents and versus driving something new. It, it's more where does the technology fit today? And where, how can we enable new uses for it by you know, pushing for the capabilities in, in cost or in mm-hmm. material properties or other things like that?
0: Is there, what do you, is there a general rule book? Like, do you play nice first and then disrupt? Or do you set out disrupt and then, like, always yeah. fighting? Is there a, I, I, it think I think
2: you have to uh, start slowly and build trust and build relationships. And even in, there are some industries where you could be great partners for 10 or 20 years. There is a often a perception, including of I the mean, incumbents, by the way, some of these big companies kind of know that some of these disruptive entrepreneurs, particularly in places like Silicon Valley, are basically trying to use them and then over time kind of you know kind of hollow out their their margins. If you can figure out a way to have a more sustainable partnership, that's better. The worst thing to do though is to kind of declare war prematurely yeah. and I saw this with you know in the in the 90s Netscape was very successful with web browsing AOL well ended up acquiring Netscape but they basically declared war on Microsoft and said we're going to make you know everything you do irrelevant and that didn't sit so well with Bill Gates and others no. who then decided well we better crush these folks and so you That's don't you don't, you don't you don't press, you don't want yeah. to declare war until you you basically have, have already g- gain, you know kind of captured some ground but if there is a way and particularly in this third wave where partnerships as I said are going to be much more important, how do you create meaningful, sustainable, win-win partnerships over the long run, not more transactional, tactical, it works for a little while but and, and doesn't, doesn't work for too long. Well, I'm, a, a,
1: I'm a little more aggressive what, what, yeah. than that. I think yes. in general… <laughs> That's because you're from China. Yeah. <laughs> no. Steve's principles are obviously right, yeah. right? Don't do it prematurely. But if you look at what PayPal and Venmo have done in the U.S., is they've been too afraid of the credit card companies. The p- partnerships are deep and strong. If they break it, they lose a lot of uh, uh, near-term income. But in China, uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay also partner a little bit with bank and credit cards, but they slowly just kind of slip in more of their stuff. And then one day you wake up and you no longer have cash and credit cards. So, fast. We're out of time. I want to thank Steve, Kaifu, Ryan, and Max, and thank all of you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's great. Thank
0: you. great. Thanks for listening to the Forbes interview. I'm Stephen Bertoni. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'll see you next week.